Welcome to episode 176. Today, we learn about building better writers. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. When I think about writing instruction, I sometimes feel like I'm standing in the jam aisle, looking at all the flavors and options. Feeling overwhelmed as a beginning teacher, I ignored writing instruction. Close to two decades later, teaching writing still feels like a big knot to untie. But fortunately, we have authors such as Natalia Peckman, who share strategies to help students write effectively. In this highly practical podcast, you will hear how we can build writers by writing at different levels, the sentence, the paragraph, and the composition level. Get your pens out and get ready to take lots of notes with Natalia. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so excited and honored to introduce to you Ms. Natalia Heckman, all the way from Silence Education. Natalia, привет. Привет. I appreciate you saying it to me in Russian, and you sounded so awesome. <laughs> I can only say a few things in Russian. Das vidanya and uh, spasiva, and that's wow. all I know. But I, I know that when you speak someone's language, when you greet with them, students in particular, when you say hello in their language, they feel so affirmed. So I try to do that as much as I can. Yes, thank you. The moment you said it, I just felt so welcome. So yeah, I appreciate that. Can you please briefly tell us about how you spend your days, where you spend your days and your proudest professional achievement? Now, because I work for uh, Sidelitz Education now full time, I spend most of my days in school districts meeting with teachers for professional developments. Um, and I fly a lot. So as soon as I finish a session, I run rush to the airport and just catch a plane to the next location. But I'm that odd person that likes airports. So I don't know if it surprises you or not, but once I get to the airport, I, I feel such a peace. <laughs> I plug in my headphones and I listen to podcasts and I listen to you all the time. So this is how we connected. Thanks to Twitter and thanks to your fabulous podcast. Absolutely adore it. Um, the professional achievement now, I think to this day, because I really start, I only worked as a specialist and as a coach, as an ESL bilingual program and the ELA content specialist for two years. Before that, I taught full time. So I still feel that the proudest achievement to this day is the success of my students. But probably as of last week, I can say that it's my book, Building Better Writers. So I'm super excited and proud about that. Um, I'm happy how it turned out. So I hope that maybe many writing teachers maybe will find it useful somewhat. <laughs> I found it useful when I went to your session on this book way before you had a book. I, I was like, wow, this is so good. I know she's going to turn this to a book in the future, this session into a book and it is here. And so we're excited to have building better writers. Can you, before we get to the, to the book, can you share a story about teaching that has really influenced your practice to this day? Um, I'll tell you a story and I, I remember it very clearly. It's, uh, it, it's in the sentence level. It's in that first part of the book. 
And the book is set up as uh, three, four parts. So you have sentence level, you have the paragraph level, you have a chapter on composition, and the largest part of it um, is the chapter on activities. You have sentence and paragraph level activities. So this one is in the very beginning. So I think it leads to the central concept that ties, in my mind, ties all those parts of the book together. Um, so I remember I was in my English one and I taught English one class. Um, we were in the beginning of the lesson. I had a just a very typical grammar warm up. I had a sentence on my board. I had a model sentence. So I asked kids to copy it. We talked about it. I pointed out some things I thought were amazing. And I eventually were, I was going to ask them to um, write a sentence similar to the one I had up there. And then I go through the motions and I hear one student say, Miss, you talk so much. Can we just have more time to write? Can you? Can we stop talking and do more writing? And I, it was, this is, uh, it's just something, I think I kind of gulped and had to regroup, but I thought you are absolutely right. And it's, uh, it took a little bit of uh, maybe like soul searching there on my part, but I said, yes, we have to write more. And I didn't want us to use worksheets because that's what kind of like you reach for when you don't know what to do. But that child told me exactly what was missing in my class. And I thought, you know, I'll try to figure out what are some things that we can do. And that's where that syntax part, the syntax game section that you might have um, watched the session. So that the sentence level is all both focused on how can we incorporate practice that is not a worksheet, but it, it's focused on a specific skill. So that's where the entire, the concept of games and activities for the sentence level came from. So I think that whatever that child told me many, many years ago really informed my teaching. <laughs> that's, you're so vulnerable to share that story. And you know, students are really our best teachers. Every book has a seed. What was the seed for this book? Now, I, I think that it's like when you think of a seed, you think of where their idea came from. That's how I take it. Uh, so I worked on the same campus for 10 years. I um, when I when I visit the campus, I still kind of like get that nostalgic feeling because I'm the same. I was in the same room for, for so many years. And when I was working as a specialist a couple of years later, you know how outside the room you kind of like decorate your door. I still had some old pictures there and I thought, oh, they still have some old pictures there from years back, but probably not any longer. But anyways, um, when I was a high school classroom teacher, I had two preps. So I had mainstream English and I also had ESOL classes. So it's English for speakers of other languages. And in the ESOL classes, I had newcomers and they were uh, very often uh, so the, to qualify to be in that class, you would only be, you would have to be in the country between year one, so year zero, year one, two, three, and three is the cutoff. So four, it's pushing it. So you had to really be in the very beginning of your language learning journey. So I've noticed that in my ELA department, because that's where I got all my materials, I was, they were very supportive. I had mentor teachers. Um, the district support, the district itself was the powerhouse when it comes to the ELA department. We were we were constantly trained on things. And I'm so grateful because I could really go to any ELA training imaginable. Like if I want to go to see Jeff Anderson, I would go see Jeff Anderson. Like they brought him to the district 
probably three times throughout the years. And I was so fortunate to be part of that ELA department. But then I go to my classroom and I notice that not everything that worked for my mainstream students worked for my language learners. Because I, I cannot ignore the fact that English is a foreign language to them, especially when you're in the first year. And you just learn to say, may I go to the restaurant? So that is um, the level of language development support that my students very often needed. So um, 10 years later, so working as the specialist and I walk into the classroom or ELA room and that's the number one question that teachers ask or ELA teachers, because this book is for the ELA teachers. So the teachers would say, I know my, I have my lesson planned for the ELA part of it and you're an ESL specialist. So what do you want me to do differently for the language learners, for my three language learners that I have in this period? And this is the level, or these mark two English learners that I have in my seventh period. I don't have any in my six, but still let me know because tomorrow I might. We have so many newcomers in the district. And I thought that's a really good question. Like teaching language arts, so ELAR, English language arts and reading, and teaching English as a second language, and you're 100% familiar with that because you're part of, you belong kind of to both worlds the same way I do. Those are two different specialties. And my, if you're familiar with both, you know that. But very often we are only fortunate to be a part of that one world. So I really envisioned the resource that would bring together, at least just a little bit, those two worlds of the English language arts, pedagogies, all those wonderful things that we do in our mainstream classrooms without really, um, maybe sometimes that what can we bring some of the ESL side to it? What is that English or uh, SLA? So second language acquisition. How can we merge those to where we can support our um, multilingual learners and demographics changing? So we have so many learners, can't, we cannot ignore the fact that they need a lot of our support and we may have to plan our lessons with in keeping our language learners in mind. So that's where, so I think that question, that's the seed. So how, what do I do differently for my language learners? And I wanted to have a practical resource. So the collection of activities section, that's the, that's the part that really was uh, supposed to be the only part because that's what I want teachers to have. You go to the sentence level, you open it and you pick one that works for your students. You go to the composition, the paragraph level, choose something from there. So I just really wanted to be practical. Let's go actually to the first section of your book, which is about building sentences. I love how you organize it on the features of, of academic language. There's the word level, sentence level, discourse. Um, so let's talk about uh, the sentence level. Now, I have to um, really tell you a little bit about this. The entire book was um, first like a little science board, you know, like the threefold, like kind of like stand-up science board. And every, all the information was on sticky notes. So Anna Mattis and uh, I were working, trying to figure out what goes in which section, where would be the helpful, most helpful information for teachers to have in uh, each part. So yes, before it was so well organized, as you mentioned, so huge thank you to Anna Mattis for giving me a little bit of guidance and help with that. That was just, that is something, um, I think it made that resource more user-friendly than I could ever imagine it. Um, now, for about the sentence level, things that 
at that in this part what what doesn't what why it doesn't stick like there are a couple of things in that chapter um i guess the big ones the first one maybe not teaching grammar as a part of writing instruction explicitly and hoping you know kids will acquire it from reading and it they do a lot of kids who are who read a lot and who are who like to read they do pick up some elements here and there, but it just seems that it might be leaving many of our students behind. The struggling readers, um, a lot of our multilingual readers who are just in that very beginning of their language journeys, and they might be older. Like I worked with the secondary kids, but it's just not enough time to simply pick it up from reading and not enough amount of reading of texts. So this is that first part. We absolutely have to, uh, find a way to maybe incorporate little bits and pieces of that explicit language instruction. Um, the second thing that I thought deserved our attention was mechanical drills. So those mechanical drills do not build writers. Worksheets do not build writers. And this is, we know that because that is something that the, uh, the SLA world tells us. You have to be, you have to pay attention to the meaning of the message and you have to pay attention to the form at the same time, but it has to be meaningful. So whatever we work, if we work on a grammatical point, it has to be linked to the meaning or the meaning of the message. Now, can I give you a practice? Can I give you an example? So, um, and I think that's this part, like just really like will help if I kind of give you the example of what a mechanical drill is and what is not. So um, imagine that I, I need kids to work on comparative and superlative degrees of adjectives. So I'm going to say, you know what? Um, here's the workbook and I want you to use more and most. So in each sentence, you're just gonna have to plug in most and more, most and more. I can really do that without even understanding what either of those mean and how to use that. I'm just going through the motions of filling in the blank there. And I don't have to, uh, it's, it's not as meaningful to me. So there's no really a point at which a student has to pause, make connections. Of course, they're going to be for, uh, connecting to that grammatical form to the, if I taught a lesson before that. But again, this is something that um, is can be done quite without the paying attention to the meaning of the message. Now, when I, if I, they're deciding, they're bubbling the answers on the Scantron, it's still a mechanical drill. So it's either way. Or I can create a communicative context for them where this particular uh, task that I ask them to do would require this particular grammar form. So what would it look like? Right now, Amazon is popular, right? Now, in uh, back when I taught, we had Craigslist. It's just so <laughs> now I can pick three items from Amazon. I can show pictures on my screen and I can ask students to guess which item is more expensive, most expensive and describe those items using adjectives. So I can still give them a sentence that would have a blank. I will give a sentence stem, but they would be really focused on in using that form for meaningful communication. And to the extent of how, I mean, how can we, it's a, it's still, there's always a difference between the classroom and the real world, but to the extent possible, we can create those tiny uh, opportunities where this certain form that we use for communication is absolutely necessary to convey an idea. 
So this is the, actually um, the, the activities from the sentence level, and it's called The Price is Right. It's a, um, the right as in W-R-I-T, because we write at the end. And this is that second part. It's like a meaningful, uh, it's a meaningful skill building activity versus the mechanical drill. So that is that that is a concept that that to me is one of the central concepts in the sentence level. Right. I can see this uh, being built within content classes. For example, let's say that the teacher says, "Okay, we we're going to learn about the pool factors for why people migrate." And the teachers can say, uh, the teacher can say, let's write sentences about which which pool factor do you think is the most, it has the most influence on people, right? And so that can be one of the paragraphs that students have to write about, and they have to use the word most, right? And, and that and that and that has a really different meaning than the word more. And so um, that's a great example, and I like your con the idea of communicative context. Like we have to give. To teach students to write, we have to give them a purpose to communicate. And when they give a purpose to communicate, they'll use a specific form. And when we teach that form to communicate, they'll learn more explicitly. You put it in, you put it so succinctly, and I love it. It's just that's exactly it. Thank you for summarizing it. So I just yes, yes. <laughs> that's because you explained it so well. Uh, so Let's describe what effective grammar instruction would look like. Now, I um, I love the quote by Valentina Gonzalez, and she talks about um, she talks about building lessons, and, and I I hope I can remember it. I think she says, "Excellence for our bilinguals does not happen by accident. We design it." So. Um, absolutely love that quote and that just brings me to think what are some things that we need to design those meaningful purposeful lessons that the communication and written communication so writing happens in our classrooms um not as a not by accident because we are purposefully designing it so the chapter oh the part that uh you're referring to there are a couple of concepts there um, we can talk about the grammar lesson or the principles of the effective grammar lessons. This is something that I love highlighting. Now, it's actually on page 49 in the book, and it's a central concept, and it's not something new at all. It's just it's something that most teachers are already doing. It may be just looking at uh, through the lens of the language acquisition at a, at a strategy, at a, um, the technique that is already in place. So um, three things, the three principles of an effective gram uh, mini grammar lesson, grammar mini lesson. Now, number one, use several sentences to highlight one grammatical form or one syntactic feature. And uh, I've noticed that, that the students cannot grasp the pattern from just looking at one sentence. And just that logically, if I only see one sentence, it's hard to see like, what am I, what am I looking at? What is, what is, where's the pattern? If I have two or three sentences built the same way, or if I have uh, two or three sentences that carry the same feature, our brain are pattern seekers, we can see that. So this is where that Simply displaying one sentence is not enough. I need to see more than one. Um, so that's principle number one. 
making mentor sentences accessible. And this is a big one for me. Um, I very often, we pick a sentence from the book we're reading or from the, let's say from a mentor text, from the workbook, they're great, they're beautiful, but they may not be necessarily accessible for all of my learners. And the vo vocabulary in that sentence can overshadow the structure. So if I'm teaching, for example, verbal phrases in the beginning of the sentence, and I'll give you a concrete example here in a second, I want the vocabulary to be where the students can really pay more attention to form because vocabulary is not an issue. So like in, in math, for example, when we introduce a formula, brand new formula, we don't ask students to use huge numbers to plug into that formula. We want them to manage the structure, learn how that comes together first. And then eventually when they're comfortable with it, then they can plug in any number. So that's the same, that beauty of the language. Once we grasp the form, we can really use it at the level of the language that we have. So my advanced high students, my neonative speakers who are very comfortable, they're not going to be the using the same language that I'm modeled with. They're going to be using the language that's available to them. So when I talk about making mentor sentences accessible, here's the, uh, here's the difference. I can display on my board, listening to music, I was cleaning my room. So that verbal phrase, listening to music, that ing verb in the beginning, I was cleaning my room. Okay, second sentence, which is a non-example. Uh, listen to this one. Crushing into the rugged boulders, the crest of the raging wave splattered, foamed up, and dissipated. Now, I love it. No, it's a beautiful sentence, but... You see how that vocabulary, first of all, I will be bogged into this explaining what the words mean forever. And I, the goal of a grammar mini lesson is to really be tiny. <laughs> There's anything but tiny here. So um, they both sentences have the feature that I need to teach. And I'm going to use the one that um, that second sentence still likely to overwhelm students' working memory, trying to, the kids will be trying to figure out what the words mean. Um, it will be hard for them to focus on structure. So I'm going to keep it streamlined, very clean and clear so that they can focus on the form just to grasp the concept. Um, that's number two. So number three is to create the mentor sentence with a powerful memory cue. And um, if you, and you, I know that it's just, you're such a, you're such a great listener, Tan, like you always take notes and you then get like summarize it. And I'm, um, I connect to this because I don't remember things I don't care about, but the moment it makes you connect somehow, you kind of internalize it. So mentor sentences have to be meaningful and memorable so that the students would look up First, that's the, that's the first foot in the door there, that they're actually going to pay attention to that mentor sentence. And then that it's memorable enough for them to, or, to, or that's something that they can relate to, something that they it's a fun, fun to communicate about, um, that it's not a dry sentence from the book, no matter how wonderful it is. If I don't care about it, I'm not going to remember it. So... Um, those sentences I wrote about my dog because I adopted the dog from the shelter next to the school. And they always asked me, hey, miss, show us a picture. How's your dog doing? So it was an opportunity for me to write a sentence about, about my dog. 
Um, I wrote sentences about the kids that, you know, when somebody gets a new haircut and they walk in so proud and we all notice anyways, we're going to talk about it. So that is a, that is really great opportunity to have. And the students get into it. I was like, miss, write one about me. So uh, those sentences that we write, I, um, I get the example from the workbook on my mentor text, but the sentences we write together with the students and I use as a mentor sentence on my board has to be relatable and has to be meaningful and memorable. So that's that connection piece. Uh, sometimes if it's missing, may not be necessarily a good mentor sentence. So those three, that's it's all, it's all in this chapter. So several sentences, ex that it, accessibility of that mentor sentence and the memory cue. And it's uh, something that I'm passionate about. There's a su super uh, nice graphic in the book um, you can see spotlight, like for the first one, spotlight one feature. Then you see uh, a ladder, which is a symbol for accessibility. Like anyone can climb if you just give me a scaffold. And then you have an elephant that elephants never forget. So we get the memory cue, we'll never forget. So I love that. Um, just connecting it to the graphic, it helps us to, as, uh, do I have all these? When I build the lesson, do I have all these? Do I... Did I give them accessibility? Did I pick out a couple of sentences? Are they memorable? That's all. When I listened to you share those three things, I was like, wow, she's a really experienced teacher who can really shape and transform instruction for students. I know that when I do the same thing for my students, write sentences about them uh, on a recent holiday or on a, like when they do a week without walls, when they do a trip out camping or when there was a recent event in the town, or that I know that they were part of a sports team, or that there was just a drama performance, I'll write about them using that form, and then it makes it memorable. Um, and I, what I love is when they write the sentences, I ask them to write about, uh, if as possible, themselves, or people in their rooms, uh, the people in their classes and the community, so they feel like affirmed as well. And I always say it has to be positive, it has to be affirming, and it has to be kind. I also noticed that two th you, you share two things about mentor text. You share one mentor text from a book, but when you write one, when you're modeling for them, you write your own that's about students. So um, there's, there's a real one, a quote-unquote real one, or there's the one that's created by an author, and there's one that's created together about students. So that was helpful. Let's move to the second part of your book, which is about building better paragraphs. We're moving away from sentences now. How do we start students? How do we support students moving from sentences to paragraphs? Well, um, I think when we help students to write a paragraph, it really prepares them to write a composition eventually, because the characteristics of effective composition, to a certain extent, mirror those of an effective paragraph. And we can talk about structure, we can talk about coherence and unity, all these characteristics of a paragraph we want to see in the essay eventually. Um, I'll talk about the one that is most often overlooked, and especially uh, with our language learners, it's important. Um, the cohesive devices, and I'm going to talk about the grammatical side of it. So grammatical cohesive devices. Um, for example, personal pronouns, it and they. Now I have demonstrative pronouns, this, that, these, and those. 
and the article, the, because we know that those features can really contribute to comprehension, first of all, if we know how those things work in the language. Now, um, to make it so that where you can, so you and our listeners could imagine what it would look like, we read with students texts, we always do. And let's say that I have a paragraph on my projector. So when I come to the place where in the paragraph, there is a, uh, pronoun it, for example. I'm not going with she and he because it's easier. So I come over it, I'm my fingers pointing to that word. I'm going to say, guys, what is it? Now, can my readers, because at this point, we're really processing the text as a reader, can they go up a line or two, or sometimes the entire section of the text, can they make the connection between the idea or a thing that personal pronoun is referring to. This is the cohesive device that eventually they will have to use in their own writing, but that recognizing those in the text is the first step. The same thing with they. They is even trickier because kids very often think it's people, right? Like it's referring to two or more people. Then we might be thinking, well, no, that could be, it could be ideas. It could be anything else. So if I come over uh, to the place where it has they, Again, I'm going to say, guys, what is they referring to? And I will physically move my finger up a line. I will find what they is referring to. I will circle it. And I will use the arrow to connect they to that antecedent or they to that word that comes before that they is referring to. Now, the same thing with the other uh, ones that I described. But it has the practical side to it. Because, and it's um, on very often on revising and editing sections. And I'll, it's, now don't quote me like 100% on that, uh, but every time there is a question um, to improve clarity, to revise for clarity, most of the time they are those questions that you would see the sentence with it or they, and the students are expected to uh, replace it with the with a noun so this is like an easy point for my students on the test if they know how to do that now we're not test prepping we are building writers and readers but why not it's right there in front of you so hey guys when you see that question revise for clarity and you see that it and they we need to replace it with the words that those are two are referring to so this is um this is the uh just like so you kind of like Kill one bird with two, no, the other way around. Kill one bird, one, two birds with one stone. See, I still, after 25 years in the country, I still struggle with those idiomatic expressions. <laughs> but yes, I will point out those uh, cohesive devices in the paragraph. And it gives my students a little bit of an edge on the assessment at the end of the year, because that's, they, they understand how that works. Now, the same uh, chapter, the paragraph level, that's where, um, Lots of uh, sentence stands are for constructing text-dependent responses. So I hope that it's um, really useful because some of them are hard to come up with on the fly. So if I'm analyzing text, if it's analytical paragraph, I need some stems that serves the purpose of analysis. If it's a descriptive paragraph, so they're organized by language task. There are a lot of stems in that in that section. Would you tell us more about the how you use sentence stems, sentence frames, starters, and templates? Yes, I was actually, that's probably one of the, I have so many favorite 
parts in this book. I don't know if it's, <laughs> I hope it's a good thing. I, I think I'm too excited and I, I'm so sorry for rambling. And I, I promised that I'm not going to ramble, but I love this part because I, when I read it, when I researched it, it gave me clarity of uh, understanding what are the differences are, because we always use very often, we use those interchangeably. So a sentence stem, a, a pair of sentence starter or a sentence frame. Um, Kate Kinsella actually makes a distinction, and that's what this um, part is about. Now, it starts with a close sentence. So C-L-O-Z-E, close sentence, is a really fill-in-the-blank concept, fill-in-the-blank response um, that elicits identical response. So, for example, the capital of Texas is blank. There's no way to, like, if you know, it's a more of a comprehension check. There's really, there's really no, uh, very little space to make a grammatical error. You just plug in the identical answer that you expect from your students. Now, this is the closed sentence. A, a sentence starter offers no grammatical support. It just gets you started. So just as the name implies. Um, but for with those, be ready to see flawed responses. So here's what it means. Um, the best thing about living in Texas, which I love, I love Texas. So the best thing about living in Texas is then you have live space there, right? So fill in, uh, finish that sentence. Now, I did not support my students with anything that comes after is. So what it may look like, the best thing about living in Texas is always hot. Well, there's something's missing there. So um, that is a sentence starter. It's great to have one, but expect those flawed responses. And it's okay because that's how we develop. That's how we learn. There's nothing wrong with um, just as long as my I'm already giving um, our students the opportunity to develop that first part is great. Now, a response frame is more specific uh, and it has more form specific form focused scaffolds. Um, for example, a word bank or example with forms like with words and words, phrases that go into that blank. Um, for example, here's a, uh, here's a, a response frame. When I was younger, I blank, but now blank. So next to my first blank, I would say use past tense verbs and I have a little word bank and I have, it would say played soccer collected shells, uh, rode my bicycle. But now, so next to that blank, it would say present tense verbs. And I would have some examples. Now I go to the mall. Now I study for the SAT. Now I um, listen to my music, listen to music. So they are, those are, if the students are able to write their own, they're using those as a guide. If they are not able to write their own yet, they can still participate by uh, taking what I have in the word bank or in that phrase bank and plugging it into the sentence, into the right spot, and they're still practicing the form and they're very supported. So if um, we look at those close starter and, and response frame, response frame is the most form-focused scaffold for the students. Meaning the sentence frame is the most form focused because there's a section it starts them off then it, they input then it continues with the next part and that's structured for them yeah how do you use templates that's an interesting concept 
the template has uh, to do with the uh, the composition section. So when we um, and also the template is actually one of the kind of like used interchangeably very often with the sentence starters and with the sentence frames because oh, the authors from the uh, ELA world, so the very often when they refer to templates, they mean sentence frames. So those are really used interchangeably. Let's move to the final part of your book, which is about building better compositions. Many teachers have an essay unit. What are your suggestions suggestions for st getting started with that? I, it's a mouthful, right? Building better compositions. I I, I had to practice saying it. Um, now, I, um, I, I, I don't know if it's for something that, um, I think that this is something that everybody does when we move into the, the, the essay unit or the composition grade level, composition level writing. Now, as an ELA teacher and as an ESL teacher for my students, um, and that question is more referring to me as the teacher. So where do I get started? Like, what are some things I need to be in place to be effective in the classroom? And I would say become very familiar with the rubric. So every um, composition is assessed according to the rubric. Now, if you have rubrics, and, and they are usually available. Now, when I was, um, most of the probably success I saw from my students was around 2017. And that's where we've been using those rubrics for at least uh, seven years in a row. That's the same setup we had for the composition in Texas. So I knew the rubrics in and out. And uh, the, over the years, I became better and better at giving students feedback on their writing, but not the not the feedback on good writing in general, but the feedback on those specific elements that are required for the composition that is theirs, that end of course assessment. Because for me, the stakes were really high. The kids had to graduate. They had to pass that end of course exam. Um, there's a lot of high like it's just a lot of pressure and I always felt that you go into do great you will shine you can you have all the scaffolds here we're working on this and this is really not something to and if you have a newcomer they have several years like they have let's say freshmen they have a couple of times it's not expected to, they might not pass it on the first time but as long as we move forward and get closer to our goal so that is that um <clears throat> that's the mental, that's the mindset here. But um, for teacher though, so for teachers, I had to be very clear of what are the expectations are, what are the elements that I have to teach and the rubrics give us guidance. Um, and I'll give you a specific example. I know that Tan, you're so popular in Texas. We adore you. There are so many people that listen to you all the time. And I, everywhere I go, I tell teachers, you know, listen to Tom because he's, he's amazing and you'll learn so much. Um, now we're in Texas. We just, our assessment just changed. We have new rubrics and we really haven't used those yet with us. Dude, well, the, there has the very first testing that will happen um, massively in Texas, according to that new setup, it's going to be next week. So it's it's this this is the first time the kids are um, in the new format of the test. So the example for me, um, starting in grade eight. So counter argument. We have our kids write argumentative, write our extended response. So 
counter-argument has to be stated and refuted. This is important. Now, for the highest refuted counter-argument is required, it's mandatory to receive the highest score. Now, it hasn't been like this before. So this is a change. I need to know that. And I um, I know I'm going to be quoting uh, Dr. Carol Sala, but this is, I probably, I think I heard it from her. My students are not deficient in cognition. My multilingual learners can write a counter-argument. Yes, they might struggle with conventions and it's going to be some, they're going to have some awkward wording and there might be errors and it might be unnatural, but the understanding of what a counter-argument is is and has nothing to do with what language you speak. So you, it's uh, properly explained and properly practiced, it's possible. And if I know that this is an element that is going to make a difference, I'm going to uh, make set the goal for myself to find the best tools to introduce it to the students. So those rubrics, um, getting clarifications from your ELA specialists, so that we have our chance, our kids would have the best chance to do what they can do on those assessments. So that is the um, that is that recommendation, or I guess a suggestion of where to get started. There's a chapter on rubrics there in um, that part of the book. I love teachers in uh, Texas as well. They are one of the states that listen to uh, the podcast the most. It's like New York, Texas, in uh, California, but. Texas is like up there. So I love my teachers in Texas. I've been there several times and I, I go and do workshops there all the time. So it's, it's a lovely place and the teachers are fantastic. I really appreciate what you said about compositions. It's about going back to the rubric, thinking about understanding by design. If you want students to write better compositions, you start with how you're going to grade them and assess them that's where the rubric comes in. Right? And then you, each part of the rubric can become a mini lesson within, uh, within the, in, in the process of teaching that, that, that essay. Yeah. Let's move to the, one of the last two questions is, you suggest supporting students with structure before elaboration, why that? Now, um, so if I think structure, I think an organizer. So this part is all about essay organizers, essay frames, uh, sketch noting part, parts of the essay that it would look like an outline because this, um, this resource is for grade three through grade 12. And of course our students as young as uh, third graders, they are already expected to produce an extended constructed response, which is a little baby composition, like a baby essay. Now um, they, in it's always felt that if the students have the plan, and it's uh, something that I was very excited when I saw this quote, and I think comes with uh, Judith Hockman. And Judith Hockman is, is very popular in New York area and up north. So she says, and I'm probably gonna be, uh, not gonna be precise, but she says that if our students are working from a plan where I know what comes next, they have that mental space to focus on elaboration. So I don't have to juggle two things at the same time. So the plan we teach beforehand. So what are the parts that have to be there? What are the elements that have to be present? Um, that is that structure. And then elaboration comes next. Or it comes where the students are filling in the, uh, um, the item by item 
So the, the elements that they're adding, that they're thinking, that their specificity, that that goes into that uh, composition. So when we talk about structure, um, that's a way to organize or information. And it is, it is in line with a genre that whatever the test is, genre is in your, uh, for your specific students. And now, if um, we have, if we look in the book, there are two different organizers. Um, the difference is in the way the assessment is constructed. Some states in, uh, and it's just really probably, you tell me what your assessment is like, I'm curious to know, but some, some states have text dependent prompt, meaning that students have to, uh, and those are called extended constructed responses really. So the students have to um, use evidence from the text. So they have to pull information from the text that they read to support their thinking. Some states still have freestanding prompt, meaning that it's not linked to any test, to any text. And when the students construct their composition, they can bring outside examples, such as um, maybe life examples, and there are some movies, some films, some uh, books that they read outside of class. So it doesn't matter what evidence they use. It does not have to come from the text. And that is what I refer to as a freestanding prompt. Now, Texas changed that, so we don't have that anymore. And that's we are going uh, into that text-dependent prompt. So that's what we are working on, and that's what the students need to be practicing with. Um, those look slightly different. Those two organizers are in the book, but the idea that that yeah, the idea is uh, very similar in both. You have a thesis with your one central thought, one central controlling idea, um, and then you have two body paragraphs. Your first body paragraph is going to be focused on uh, one part of a one text textual evidence that you'll explain and the second body paragraph would have to come uh, would have to include a different textual uh, evidence the textual support for the same idea that you start that you stated in the thesis and then there's a way to connect those two uh, body paragraphs so linking them together synthesizing information um, and then depending on the genre we have different types of different ways to write a conclusion so this is just those chunks. There's just really those four big parts that the students will need to have in the essay, and that's the structure. So what they do with the body paragraphs and how they organize the information in the body paragraph, that has to do with the um, elaboration and analysis. So you just actually mentioned analysis. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that. Now, um, and I... This is this is one of those fun parts. You know how you always have your favorite lessons, and even in the writing room, even in the writing unit, you have something. Oh, you know, this is I must do. This is I have to do. And this is oh my gosh, this is coming up. I'm so excited to teach that. Now, um, elaboration has to do with the specific details. So because our students are not using personal experiences anymore. I miss that. I wish they could still do that, but this is in the past now. They have to dig deeper into the text that they are reading. So it, it is linked to the way we annotate when we read texts. But being able to pick out specific details in the text that they read um, and see how those details support the central message that they stated in their thesis, that is, uh, that, is that specificity part. But then when we look at analysis, analysis is more of a reflection. So what I what do I think about 
what are my thoughts about the evidence? Uh, this is my reflection over the text that I pulled, over the text evidence that I pulled from the reading selection. Now, um, I might be reflecting on the idea. I might be reflecting on the specific word that the author used. And that's where we get deeper into that, you know, that critical thinking. And that's where our, our students um, can show their depth of the analysis. Uh, and again, this is, I always say that, yes, they need scaffolds. Yes, they need support and linguistic tools, but they can do analysis. I, um, there's, you cannot say, like, we cannot make a blanket statement. You know, my multilingual learners struggle with critical thinking. Well, there's absolutely no reason for that. They're not deficient in cognition, but going back to that big uh, point uh, from earlier. So you can see the depth of analysis by pulling one word from the quote that you used and explaining why the author chose to use that specific language. So you're not only supporting your thought, but you, you're going into the author's craft. And that's what very often we want to see um, from that in, in that um, extended constructed response analysis piece. Uh, so this is um, this is that section. Oh, um, I have to mention that I um, look at it, the elaboration as a flip side of summarization. Just the, if you think about it, if the student can strip the paragraph of all the details and summarize it, boil it down to the main idea, then I'm going to say it's probably the same student who can replenish the skeleton with the details. It's really that thought process, that flip side of summarization. There are a couple of activities there, uh, horizontal elaborations, spider legging, section shrink, um, SPO. So SPO comes from Judith Hockman and section shrink comes from Kate Kinsella. So these are all activities that I refer to. Um, look guys, there's big authors, there are big names and they're, um, they're authority in ESL world and ELA world. So we can really kind of like bring those together and um, offer this as a something that our students can do. So you're really saying when we do analysis, it's it's you can't do writing that, that ha that's analytical if you don't understand the text. And so you're saying you teach students to read really clearly and then you model, okay, we take a word, we take a craft, and that's analysis, that's evaluation. I also loved how you talked about um, students stripping details, but then if they are able to do that, they're also able to do the inverse, which is replenishing. That's a really great um, yin-yang, uh, yet it can really connect it together. Oh, Natalia, this has been a wonderful podcast. This book has been, we have been waiting for this book to be written specifically for multilingual learners and no one else could have written it like you. So, um, Spiceva for sharing with us. Spiceva means thank you for those who are not Russian. And so uh, let's end the podcast with this, Natalia. A red light is something you asked very briefly. Uh, what do you ask teachers to do to stop when they teach writing? Uh, Yellow light is something you ask them to uh, continue doing, uh, yellow light, in, in terms of writing. And green light, what should they start doing in term of, terms of writing instruction? Now, because I've listened to all of your podcasts, I know exactly how this works. <laughs> so, but no, um, 
I, I will try to be brief. That's my, uh, that's absolutely. So red light, can I start with the red light? So we can kind of like get that out of the way and then end on the positive. Now, I would say replace some of teacher talk with the writing practice. It's just, if we cut a little bit, some things are shrink it and it gives a little bit of time for to write more. And that goes back to that, what we started with. Um, yellow light, I would say, if you know that your class has uh, language learners, maybe uh, fewer professionally written heavy sentences as mentor sentence, as mentors, as men models, and just be brave to um, write your own authentic sentences that your students will love to hear or love to see and will connect to. Uh, the green one, um, this is something I'm very passionate about. There's an entire chapter on that, and we have not talked about this, but find strength in vulnerability, vulnerability, nah, vulnerability. Okay, should I give up or should I try again? Vulnerable, vulnerability. So good. Okay, so um, find strength and vulnerability to write in front of your students. And that it's a, it's just sometimes we might be, we might feel kind of like uncomfortable. I felt very uncomfortable at first. You heard me struggling with a word. And sometimes those things pop up. Like I can struggle with a basic word and I'll be like, oh my gosh, am I spelling it correctly? So this is that uh, multilingual learners in us, no matter how many years we learn a language, it's still there. So there's some things might just um, present unusual challenge. So when, um, but I wrote with in front of the kids and that scared at first was very scary at first experience. But I think it's one of the things that we all need to do because the kids need to see how the text comes together. It's very helpful. This is what I imagine. I imagine two things, um, people coming to your workshops and people coming to you, meeting you at conferences, and they're gonna run with their copy of their book, all annotated, all sticky noted up. And they say, please Natalia, please, please sign my book. And then I see another vision. As you wrote, building better writers, I know that the flip side is building better readers. I know that's gonna come out, hopefully, and building a, uh, planting a seed. So that'll be the compilation of your series, of many series to come. So Natalia, thank you again for a practical, really clear uh, series of things we can do to build better writers. Thank you so much, Ton. I appreciate being here. And I, I, I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Dasvidanya. That means goodbye in Russian. Dasvidanya, yes. And you sound perfect. <laughs> the main message I'm taking away is for students to write more effectively, we have to create a task that creates the need for them to communicate in a specific way. This goes back to Natalia's The Price is Right game when she had students use the word most and more to talk about which products they would buy at the store. This created the context to use more and most authentically. So no worksheets, no drills, only authentic uses. I also really like Natalia's recommendation of sharing mentor texts that are accessible, sharing several of them and modeling writing sentences that relate to students' lives. I'm so excited to use these approaches to build better writers with my multilingual students. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. 
It's your turn to play traffic light teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. 